Hi, this is Kevin Flood on America's Web Radio, the classic car show. Today's guest is Mick Dolphin, purveyor of original Triumph parts, or to our US listeners, new old stock since 1989. Mick is very well known in UK Triumph circles and sells his wares both online and can be found at most of the major Triumph shows in the UK. Mick, can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and what your main day job was before you retired to concentrate on the old parts business? Well, my, uh, my proper job, um, for 35 years was as a librarian and there are parallels between being a librarian and being a garage store person because they both rely on putting things where you can find them when you get asked for them and the use of codes and part numbers and so on to keep stuff in sensible locations so really it was a fairly simple swap to go from being a librarian to being a, in effect a storeman. I think it's ideal uh, actually having done um, service management and parts management for a while I know exactly what you mean. What was your first automotive memory what really got you hooked on cars well i remember back in the 50s um, we had rich relatives some of whom had mark two jags and similar which they they'd let me wash when they visited us which is very nice very kind of them <laughs> I, I, I remember cutting my finger open on a headlamp trim on a i think it was a mark two jag once but he didn't put me off them he, he took us for rides in it and it was very exciting stuff because it was a long time before we could afford four-wheel transport and so we had to rely on various rich uncles and so on and austin somersets and so on too if we wanted a car ride but my dad was always interested in uh, doing up old cars but it's just that they didn't seem to last very long you know when he got them so we had things like three-wheeler reliance and wooden bodies and such like but he he'd learned his uh, trade also he was pretty good at make do and mend and he, he also had a sound basis of engineering as well which he tried to pass on to me without too much success that it must be said but uh, I, have, I have restored a few cars over the years to varying standards uh, I'll tell you about my latest one later on no doubt yeah. I was just going to ask you actually I mean I'm going to ask you the usual question that I ask all my guests is what's your favourite classic car but I'm, I'm trying to second guess you but I won't because I'll probably be wrong so I'll let you answer that one well, my, my first car when I, just before I was when I went to college studying librarianship I'd recently bought a Morris Minor 803cc which my father thought was the ideal car for me and it basically didn't have the power to get out of its own way because it was a machine and with 800ccs you know it wasn't a ball of fire it wasn't it was also very low geared so if you went on a long run on the uh, newfangled motorways you quite like to run big ends which I did on two occasions because it, it was ridiculously low geared at 60 miles an hour it must be doing something like five and a half thousand revs it didn't it gave the engine a pretty bad time so the second time it did this I thought oh, there must be something better than this I could have and I saw a yellow Herald convert and to me it seemed like chalk and cheese because it seemed so modern bright and airy compared with the, the old Morris not to mention pokey because although it only had a 948 engine it was the twin carb version that was fitted in the convertibles so you could kid yourself you got a sort of uh, sports car so I was over the moon with that and that lasted me on and off for years so by the time I it, or it fell to pieces I think just about every mechanical component most of the body had been changed that put me firmly on the path for, as a triumph enthusiast and the, the car I bought to replace that was a 15 pound Spitfire Mark 1 that had been festering in somebody's garden for about five years and had a ball tree growing through it so we towed that back home behind my best mate 1942 Willie's Jeep 
with me perched on a sheet of cardboard in the Spitfire, trying to keep it uh, pointing in the right direction because there was a huge hole in the floor and I had, every, I had visions of just disappearing out through it if we went over a good bump. But it was okay and that, that fire, I, I did it up and that lasted me about five years as well. And eventually it just succumbed to rust again. But in the 70s and uh, the 80s, I, I had a variety of triumphs. Heralds were popular. I had three Spitfires, several Triumph 2000s. I never had anything more exciting ones because they were a bit expensive to buy. So stags and TRs passed me by. But some more bread and butter models I got quite experienced with. And I also broke them for parts. I usually had more than one on the go at one. And so my little fleet had to be maintained by buying scrappers, which I saw in the local paper, pillaging the bits I needed and then selling on the bits I didn't. So that I suppose you could say that was the germ of my business, selling used parts for cars back in the very late 60s and 70s. Uh, and that uh, stood me in good stead. Doing up my Spitfire, I, I found a guy who'd got a, a business running a garage and selling cars at the local disused railway station. It was ever so nice. And I just went there and said, any chance of borrowing your welding gear? I want to rebuild a, a Spitfire. And he said, yeah, you can do it here. So I did. And whenever I got a bit of time, I'd go down there. I'd buy him some gas occasionally. My welding down there. And from time to time, triumphs used to come in. And I had to run of them before anybody else took any bits off them. And some quite interesting cars came in, actually. Something appeared in the scrapyard it tended to disappear again heralds were your favorite then by the sound of it until you moved along a little bit up into the 2000s yes i had a succession of heralds and i I used to cannibalize them as i said before to to keep the best one on the road and i learned quite a bit in the process the the spitfire though was a a big improvement i mean it was beautiful cars had a gt6 bonnet which someone fitted on it was very early mark one it was about a 63 and it was in about the first 4000 as such it would have been quite a, a collectible car now but by the time I'd finished with it. The engine had been changed, the diff had been changed, everything had been changed. So it was a bit like my heralds, you know. I constantly try to update them if I possibly could, whereas now you try and keep them original, wouldn't you? Another story about a Spitfire later. But uh, So that was what started me off. Really, I didn't have any other cars which weren't Triumph up until the early 90s when a 25S estate that I had unfortunately uh, met its Waterloo at the end of our road in the fog with a guy coming the other, the other way with no light. And it uh, totaled it, unfortunately. It didn't do me any harm, but it was a very, very good car. I really missed it. Was it a PI? No, it was the S version with the SU carbs on it. And in the right hands, they, they go very well indeed. And this one had done about 100, I think it was in, into the 200,000 miles, but he ran like a watch. And apart from being very frilly around the edges, it was a very solid, reliable car. And yeah. uh, I really could have done without smacking it up, but there you go. The reason I mentioned the PI is, I mean, back in my days when I was a young apprentice mechanic, I, I had the fortune, or probably misfortune, to try and get one of those running properly, a PI, and I had some terrible problems with it. But, yeah. Uh, um, yeah, they were quite ahead of their time, I think, a little bit. And Absolutely, but they, they, the old problem with Triumph um, getting the general public who bought their cars to do the development on them, I mean, they, they, they did this time and again, and I think it did cause a lot of problems over time. But yeah, the PIs, again, they, they were way beyond my technological capabilities because I'd never had any formal grounding in engineering or motor vehicle technology. So, you know, I avoided anything difficult like the plague, which is one reason why I've never had a Dolomite or a Sprint or a PI of any kind, but I kept to the simple four and six bangers and uh, kept my fingers crossed. Often the best way, I think. Right, yes. I, I did hear of uh, somebody, a mate of mine, who bought one of the very first Dolomite 1850s, and apparently after about three years, it had to be dumped because nobody could get the cylinder head off because they uh, they had inclined studs. Yeah, they did. They were an odd thing. Brilliant idea. <laughs> 
you try getting them out once they're really stuck. And probably these days people know how to do it, but when they were only a, a relatively new car, they just gave up on it completely and then bought something else. I think as well, back in the day there, where people didn't really understand alley and stuff like that in engines, the coolant people used to put in was wrong and everything used to rust on and that was a thing, I think. And had a tendency to strip the threads of the alloy heads because they raunched the plugs up too tight and things like that. Get the helicoils out. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Like that. What have you got now? Well, there was a long expression. period. After the, after the uh, 2.5 got to smashed up and I did need a reliable car so unfortunately I had to bite the bullet and buy a modern car but my my collector's car is my 1980 Spitfire 1500 which I call the last Spitfire and I bought that from a friend at college where I was working for quite a few years and she was in her she was in charge of leisure and tourism and she must have bought this car well she bought it a long time ago actually it was only about a year or two old when she bought it she was the second owner so she'd had this Spitfire from about 1982 and every now and then she'd try and sell it to me because she knew I was interested in Triumphs and old cars generally but each time I turned it down flat because it was such a pile of rust and it didn't look like anyone ever looked after it at all but the second time uh, which was 95 yeah something like 95 I took pity on it and her and bought it off her for far more than it was worth and it was a real it was a real sort of gullible person's motor because he had it serviced by a, a so-called classic car specialist nothing to do with triumphs just general classic cars and i had to go and visit him one day because I, I wanted to see whether they wore cowboy hats and spurs because they really were the worst bunch of cowboys going it came with a big pile of invoices bills etc for job most of which involved fitting things that it didn't need while totally ignoring the fact that it was falling to pieces and you know i went i went over it with a fine tooth comb and i filled about four sheets of a4 with things that needed doing tabs i could not understand for the life of me how it could ever have got a valid mot yeah I, therein lies the garage, question been testing it as did the work on it but it was awful so i was very wary driving that car home i didn't turn a wheel again for about two months until i'd done the more obvious repairs on it took it apart completely it undertook i think about a 10-year rebuild which is not because i was conscientious and painstaking just that i did it rather intermittently and i'm very slow <laughs> well <laughs> uh, but i think half the battle sometimes is the doing of it isn't it it's it's enjoyable to do it and i think some people enjoyable. some people um, like to do it and then when they've done it they're like oh i need to get another one now because i, I, I oh, can't no, do I, any I more to this <laughs> i don't fall into that category because any any car i restore is always a work in progress <laughs> afraid i mean this one still is but the, the interesting thing about this car was one of the sales pitches that the lady used to try and sell it to me was that it was the last bit fire and i said no no it's not yes it is the lady who sold it to us who was the first owner said it was the last bit fire and I, I said no no and when i when i checked out the chassis numbers on the web it was about 500 off the end of production but it was actually built in 1980 but oh, the wow. interesting was it wasn't sold and taxed until 1st of August 82, which makes it just about the only Spitfire with a Y registration in the country. So as far as I'm concerned, it was the last one registered in the UK. Got some I kudos. I call it the last Spitfire, but then I put in, when I take it to shows, which I have done occasionally, I put a little sticker in the front windscreen saying, the last Spitfire, and then I put in much smaller font underneath, registered in the UK, and then an even tinier font underneath that, probably. But no, but no one's ever come to me and said, well, actually, it's not the last one registered, because it's very likely, it's actually, although it's probably 
probably the old unregistered one sitting around still in somebody's garage. Yeah, but, you, you could probably um, you could probably find out, couldn't you? I'd have thought if, mm. if from the DVLA or somewhere. I would say. Yeah, well, I can't be bothered really, but uh, no. I, it would it would boil it if I found out. No, it. true. It would take away the magic, really. But wouldn't the, it? the lady who bought it used to work for BL. And oh, okay. She, she must have taken a, a fancy to a Spitfire, and she approached them to buy one under the employee scheme. And by that time, they'd been out of production for months, oh, right. if not several years. And so she was really onto a loser. But eventually they tracked one down at a dealership in Birmingham somewhere, Patrick Motors, and um, she went along to see it. And I think she was a bit taken aback because A, it was brown, and B, it had no overdrive. So really it wasn't the most desirable Spitfire in the world in 1982. And she must have said, oh, haven't you got any more? And they must have said, you'll have to take this one, it's the last one. So it was, Hence you know, the mind, last Spitfire. But it wasn't by any means in terms of uh, production, but it was in terms of the availability, I'm quite sure. Talking so, of uh, um, cars again, do you have any buyer's remorse? Have you? I know you said you bought some that you've had that, that you've had them till they fell apart and stuff like that. But have you ever bought one that's been an utter and complete basket case in terms of a classic car, and you've thought, "Oh my God, what have I bought here?" <laughs> <laughs> An old gentleman in the, in the next village gave me his 2.5 TC saloon uh, about 10 years ago because he was giving up driving. Actually, he passed away not very long afterwards, so I think he must have known something. But this car had been, was outwardly quite good uh, looking, and I got a, I got an insurance chitty for it, and I took it for an MOT, and it failed on just about everything, even though mechanically, you know, engine, drivetrain, brake, all good, but hills were dropping out, floor was dropping out. It, it had been quite well bodged up over the years, but it was actually a total basket case and could not be restored, so unfortunately I broke it for part. But the interesting thing about that was, like a lot of rotten cars I broke, it had been Zybart protected from new, and where the stuff had taken it was like it had been done yesterday, but a few inches away, it had had no effect at all and the thing was just crumbling to, to rust. It's time for a break on the classic car show from America's Web Radio. I'll be back with my guest, Mick Dolphin, after these messages. Your auto love and investment demands the best, and for 45 years, Passport Transport has been meeting those demands. From manufacturers to the one-car collectors and all other facets of the auto industry and antique auto hobby. The first and the finest with unequaled service and peace of mind. Passport Transport, your auto transportation company. Contact PassportTransport.com with your need today. Passport Transport. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. Hi, this is Steve Ronaldo, host of the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio. Uh, just talking to you about antique car insurance. I think that uh, if you're looking for the best coverage for your classic car, consider J.C. Taylor Insurance. They've been our my insurer for years in this hobby and have the top rating of every, all of the insurance companies in the hobby. When you get ready for insurance, call J.C. Taylor or visit jctaylor.com on the Internet. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This is Kevin Flood on America's Web Radio, the classic car show, and we're back with my guest, Mick Dolphin. And I think the, the stuff is very good, but it's the person who applies it that uh, really decides whether the car is going to last 
a long time or whether it's just going to go the way of all the others because if you don't do it 100% conscientiously you miss a few bits and that's it it's the beginning of the end yeah I think it's I, I've seen a few cars where people are supposed to have wax oiled them and you're like well yeah the bits you've wax oiled are fine but you've kind of missed most of the inside of the sills and missed inside the wheel arches and then they you know, rot through basically what about one that you've sold the one that got away and you're some kind of in tears as it goes driving down the road to be honest i've sold very few complete cars <laughs> i've sold quite a few in bit but i had a, a very nice the gt6 mark III that i sold but I, normally if i was selling it it was only as a very extreme move in order to buy something else so whatever i was buying to replace it with in my eyes was always better than what i was getting rid of so in retrospect it would have been nice to hang on to the, some of them for a bit longer but i did buy a car one which has caused me a lot of grief over the years and that was when I was working at the college obviously everybody knew me as the lunatic with the triumph and one of the business studies lecturers had a rather wayward son who ran a Spitfire Mark III when they were only a few years old you know and sort of thing I could never aspire to so he was obviously a rich git by uh, my standard and he'd had several bumps in various cars and so his uh, father who was paying for his insurance had been forced to have and so of course this Spitfire Mark III was an only insured third party and lo and behold he pulled out from a T-junction a bit sharp when something was coming and got smacked in the front and it looked quite a mess because the bonnet was all dented the front chassis rail had been shunted sideways a little bit etc etc and by that time I was still down at the garage in the local village which had been an old railway station restoring my Spitfire and um, Jack the father said look could, could you possibly put your well skills to some use on this car and try and get it back on the road at minimal cost because it's not insured for third party for um fully comp so i said yeah okay i'll do my best with it and i thought secretly well it'll give me a bit of practice when i do mine so uh, i pulled it apart took the bonnet off which is obviously complete scrap and checked out the chassis very very technically you know with a straight edge and a tape measure and i came to the conclusion that the side rail the front rail had been moved sideways about a quarter of an inch so i heated everything up and banged it a few times with a big hammer and got it so it looked about fine and so really i was well on the way to restoring it but the problem was no bonnet so i'd ordered up things like overriders and a front bumper for it from our local triumph dealership which still had the stores full of stuff in those days of course because it was still almost a current model we're talking about, I don't know, 1976, something like that. And anyway, I was driving through the outskirts of Tamworth where I work, and I suddenly noticed this really disreputable, decrepit wreck of a white Spitfire Mark I up somebody's driveway. So I paused, backed up, went and knocked on the door, and had a, a word with the owner, and he said, oh, yeah, it's been sitting here for a few years now, he says. It hadn't got an engine in, it hadn't got a gearbox in, so basically it was just a, a rolling shell, but it did have a quite respectable bonnet on it. In fact, the bodywork on it wasn't that bad for a car that was 10, 12 years old in those days. So I bought, I, well, I bought the whole car, as one does. I think I paid about 20 quid for it. Again, towed it back to the garage when no one was looking and parked it with their other scrappers in the car park. And I'd had the bonnet off it, of course, and various other useful bits. And then it was just sort of left out to grass for a while. Uh, I modified the bonnet to a Mark III by putting adapters on the side lamp holes, which is exactly what Triumph did when they produced the first few uh, Mark III oh, bits. Okay, so oh, that's, that's how they did it. Bonnet. That's interesting. Yeah, the, the Mark II bonnets, they must have had a bit of a glut of them. But when they introduced the Mark III, they modified a few hundred using these cast alloy adapters to take the long, uh, oblong side flasher lamp instead of the two separate ones and i just happened to have a pair of those so that particular job was easily done and so anyway it all went together 
quite well and put the new bumper on, put the new overriders on, the, the garage sprayed the car. It looked like a million dollars. Uh, when I tried to get the overriders and the bumper on, that's when I discovered that it must still have been a little bit distorted at the front end. But I managed to get a lot of people to lean on a bar so that I could pop the last bolt in the bumper and everything fitted a treat. And I just thought, well, I, I just hope to God nobody ever undoes that last nut because it's going to fly in all directions. <laughs> put a hole in them as it comes yeah. out. <laughs> but several months down the line, uh, I'd taken all the useful bits off the scrap Spitfire. It was just sitting up the back of the, the garage lot. And so one day some scrap people came in and they bought the whole lot uh, because I think it was one of those periods when scrap steel was suddenly valuable. And they just came in and bought all the shells that were still sitting around, including my Spitfire. So I wasn't bothered because... I'd had just about every usable component off it. But ages later, I was looking through my collection of commission numbers, which I'd taken off scrappers, because I always did this, and I'd got the one off the Spitfire. And I hadn't bothered really taking any notice of it, because it was covered in paint, like most of the other stuff was under the bonnet. You know, it was all gobbed up with black paint of one sort or another. You couldn't read the number. And so, uh, uh, idly, I sort of scraped at the number, and it said FC which is Spitfire Mark One, and then there was a big gap with no numbers on it. I thought, what's this then? And then at the end it said four. In other words, I'd been instrumental in scrapping the fourth Spitfire ever made. Oh, no. <laughs> um, I keep a bit quiet about that. Yeah. It was a Coventry plate on it, but I wasn't yeah. so knowledgeable in those days, so it didn't really ring any bells. It was something like four digits V, which should have rung bells immediately, but it didn't. You'd have, um, if you kept that, you'd be having some of, like, what Mr Gunby's got in his collection, all these prototypes so, and all yeah. his original bits and bobs. Yeah, That's right, um, and it was the motor show car, and it oh, was no. one of the press cars, they had four press cars, and this was one of them. But, oh, wow. Well. Uh, <laughs> I did try to get the number released by um, DVLA, but... Since I couldn't remember which of the four it was, I must have given them the wrong number because they didn't say they didn't say I could have it. Which is just well, but no, I feel a bit worried about that whenever I think about it. Uh But without an engine in it, you see, and no long documentation. Yeah, I mean, it was it'd be difficult doing anything with it. But it's it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Just um, moving on to the business now, I guess. I mean, uh, I I gave it a little bit of an intro at the beginning. You, You started in '89, and you've got some really nice bits on the website about the business and the humble beginning. So it'd be nice if you could just take us through that stuff. That'd be great. Well, I think it was probably in the mid '70s when I began to be aware that garages and similar places were getting rid of stock for older cars that they didn't need uh, you know which were now completely obsolete and triumphs of course were well up that uh, list because some of the older stuff wasn't in great demand you know standard and early herald and things like that and so there was a climate of selling stuff off and occasionally i got to hear about these things oh and a, a garage not very far from us decided to sell up uh, so i went along and checked it out and it was a, a triumph Rover garage, I believe, and there was quite a lot of triumph parts there. And I put in a few desultory bids for stuff, and discovered I'd bought about a, a white van load of new triumph spares. Most of which I didn't know what they were, but I knew they were triumph. So I took them home, and that was, I suppose, the, what started me off on this. And so after that, I started collecting the little dealership lists that came with the new cars, and I built up quite a collection of which covered the period from about 1960 up to 1980 eventually so i was able to work out where the old triumph dealers were and i used to systematically ring them up and occasionally they'd say oh yeah we've got loads of stuff why don't you come down more often than not they'd say 
oh, you should have come here six months ago, we skipped about 10 tonnes of path, which is always a bit worrying. But as a result of that, I was able to pretty well clear quite a few old Triumph dealers, and the people were only too pleased to get rid of the stuff. You know, they didn't want much money for it in many cases. So I'm still selling some of that. <laughs> but my product knowledge wasn't uh, that good. To me, anything with a six-digit um, part number was fair game. But in fact, I found I was buying lots of Rover stuff as well, I realised later. Oh, wow. So, I was uh, going to ask you that, actually, because a lot of it's interchangeable, isn't it, as well, at some levels? Well, they had a... Well, no, not the not the old Rover. Oh, OK. The old Rover and Triumph were like deadly enemies. If, if you think of the Triumph 2000 versus the Rover 2000, they were different design philosophies and everything, and there was hardly anything apart perhaps the old Lucas item, which was interchangeable between them. But they, they used the same numbering scheme, which would have been very, very confusing you'd have had a Triumph number the same as a Rover number. So they had a sort of gentleman's agreement going with them, whereby the Rover numbers never duplicated the Triumph numbers and vice versa. And this, this worked very well, actually, though there were a few mistakes over the years. But they managed to get round this by, I think Rover used to put a 9-0 in front of a number, which turned out to be a Triumph number as well, and so on. So... It all worked out very well. Just by, you know, the awful lot of fives, sixes, threes and twos were um, Rover parts, not Triumph parts. And as the dealerships were often together in later years, you, you often ended up buying stuff that wasn't actually Triumph. So I just chucked it all in cardboard boxes and put it in the back of my shed. And then 15 or 20 years later, eBay came along. And lo and behold, I found some it was worth loads of money. But... Um, the, the annoying thing was I went to garages in as late as the early 80s where I was walking over Rover 2000 P6 stuff to get to Triumph stuff. Had I thought about it and what was going to happen in future, I would have been buying the Rover stuff as well, but it just never occurred to me because the Rover P6 is a very interesting car. You know, the old Rover 2000, yeah. 3.5, yeah. yeah. because... As far as I know, hardly anybody reproduces stuff for it, and yet it's a car which is popular all over the world. So whenever I look through my collection of stuff and find a P6 part, I, I stick it on eBay and I know somebody's going to buy it, often in Australia or somewhere like that, you know. Yeah. Cause it's, it's, as you say, though, sort of 2020 hindsight's a wonderful thing, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, but it, it, if I had spent as much time and energy chasing... Um, Rover 2000, the 3.5 parts, and the P5B as well, the big the big Rover. I, I think I could have made a bomb out of it, but as it is, I just sort of picked around the edges and left tons of stuff behind, which in hindsight would have been worth a fortune now. But there you go, as you say. Hindsight's a wonderful thing. Right, so um, where do we go from here then? Well, I think you, you kind of, you had an, in, it looked like, from what I could see by the website, you, got an, you had an intention to have, help triumph owners basically keep them on the road by finding stuff for them and at reasonable prices uh, as opposed to some of the more because i know. was dealing with the the less exciting models and you know you can't charge huge amounts of money for parts for something like a 1300 front wheel drive or a basic herald saloon you know because people are running or were running these cars more or less on a shoestring they weren't prepared to spend loads of money but on the other hand they were in a situation where it wouldn't take much for them to just sort of get rid of it and get something else. So I wanted to see cars still running around. And for the same reason, I stopped, it occurred to me, every time I scrapped a Triumph, I was doing myself out of a customer in the longer term. That's so true, that, actually. That's a good philosophy to think yeah, of, really, yeah. Just sunk in with some people who still do seem to scrap on a 
regular basis, but I'm sure the ones they scrap are probably beyond uh, any kind of restoration, so at least the parts get get saved. You were going to ask me about reproduction parts, I think. Yeah, I, was, uh, I wondered what your what your thoughts are about the reproduction world, because obviously the new old stock is going to run out eventually. What do you I'm, I'm fortunate in that I don't rely upon it as my sole source of income, otherwise I would be <laughs> worried. But you get snotty about reproduction parts. I mean, I, I distance myself from them as much as I possibly can. I mean, the only... The only non-genuine parts I sell are period ones. In other words, ones that were made in the 60s and 70s as aftermarket parts for Triumphs. In many cases, made by the original equipment manufacturer, although they don't say that on the, on the packaging, but in some cases they certainly are. Others not so. But they were all made in the UK, and they were all made to reasonably good standards, whereas you can't say that modern reproduction stuff is all that wonderful, generally speaking. It's time for a break on the classic car show from America's Web Radio. I'll be back with my guest, Mick Dolphin, after these messages. Hi, this is Steve Ronaldo, host of the classic car show on America's Web Radio. Uh, just talking to you about anti-car insurance. I think that uh, if you're looking for the best coverage for your classic car, consider J.C. Taylor Insurance. They've been our my insurer for years in this hobby and have the top rating of every, all of the insurance companies in the hobby. When you get ready for insurance, call J.C. Taylor or visit jctaylor.com on the Internet. Buzz off with Lawyer Liz. Join me each week, Wednesdays at 2 o'clock, as we talk drones, Internet of Things, and technology. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. 45 years of experience is behind the most trusted name in auto transportation. Passport Transport, the first and finest today. That's why Passport Transport is the preferred auto transport for major auto manufacturers, concours, museums, tours, and collectors, and should be your choice from across the state to across the country. When you have the need, go to PassportTransport.com and enjoy the peace of mind referenced experience will give you. Passport Transport. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This is Kevin Flood on America's Web Radio, the classic car show, and we're back with my guest, Mick Dolphin. So uh, I just don't like... I don't want to confuse the issue. I could, I could increase my turnover fairly dramatically if I branched out into selling repro parts, but so many of them are substandard, and it would confuse my unique selling proposition, which is I only sell original new parts. So, yeah, um, I, I think that's right, and, I, and you're known for that as well, which I, I, I think that's a nice thing that, to be known for, a, a particular niche that you, you're very you know, well, passionate it's, it's about. Certainly, certainly a niche. It's a little teeny-weeny niche, but uh, I was very gratified when I went to the Stonely Show last weekend that I was probably... Unless somebody tells me different, I was probably the only person there who was primarily, in fact, not almost totally selling genuine parts in quantity and nothing else. So, um, and, I, and this was reflecting how much I sold. I was uh, very gratified, but of course, I've now got the big problem of how do I source replacement stock? Yeah, that's it. You know, when it's gone, it's gone, isn't it? Some well, of it. Like but what was your biggest haul of new old stock stuff in one place, and where was it? I can think of two major ones. One was a garage, well, actually, 
actually, it wasn't. It was a triumph specialist in Lincolnshire, not a million miles away from Rimmers, who had once emptied one of the big main dealers in Lincoln. He, he'd had lorry loads of stuff out of it, and then he, over the period of years, he, he marketed it and sold it. Kept a fairly low profile, but it was all genuine stuff, and he'd got quite a lot of um, Rover stuff amongst it as well. So he probably suffered from the same problem as me. In the end, he. For various reasons, he decided he was going to move abroad, and so he he sold it all to me. And, uh, I mean, he could have sold it to Rimmers, but for whatever reason, he said he wasn't going to, so I bought it instead. I made numerous trips over there with the car and trailer and brought back loads and loads and loads of useful stuff, a lot of which I've still got. And, and So that was one major purchase. And then only a few years ago... A chap came up to me on my stall at Stonely, and he was a guy I sort of wasn't too happy about seeing because he'd once kept me waiting a year for £350 that he owed me for some parts. But anyway, he'd, he'd come good in the end. So, uh, But my wife said, oh, no, it's him. You know. But he said, you're always looking for garages and parts, aren't you? I said, yeah, and he, he actually tipped me off about one or two in the past, so it wasn't all bad. Uh, he said, well, there's a garage near us in Manchester. He said, well, he's jam-packed full of Triumph and British Leyland parts. Everybody locally knows it and uses it if they've got old cars, but its fame didn't seem to spread more than a few blocks away, you know. So I immediately went up there, and once I'd overcome the suspicion of the owners, they showed me round, and no kidding, there was... It was like going into King Tut's tomb. Whichever way you looked, there was interesting stuff. And what had happened was it had never been a Triumph dealership, you see, so it wasn't on my radar as such. But what they'd done is, when the local Triumph dealer had gone fut, they'd bought all its stock of parts and incorporated them into their existing stock of um, parts because they'd been a Morris-Wolseley dealership. And as a result of this, they had a huge amount of new stuff. Uh, It was all beautifully racked out and arranged, so it didn't take... uh, much difficulty to find the bits I was really interested in. And I spent many a happy day up there going through their stuff and taking a car and trail load back with me. And eventually uh, it got to the point where they were thinking of retiring and they were pointing out stuff that I'd missed that they'd come across, you know, on stag panels and things. Excellent. And it was just mind-boggling how much stuff they got, to be honest. It was Jaguar, MG... But, of course, I was only buying the Triumph stuff. They didn't want me to sort of pick, pick stuff from all over because they got other people who were interested in the other stuff. But the, the Triumph stuff was all, plenty to keep me interested. And, no, it was absolutely jaw-dropping. But, unfortunately, when they retired, I still hadn't completely finished going through the, the stock, but I'm, I'm sure I'd hit 90% of it. And he, he invited loads of people up from various owners' clubs and so on, and they cleared quite a lot of it. But I'm willing to bet probably about 20 or 30 tonnes of viable car parts of one sort or another ended up being thrown away. Uh, I got yeah. there just in time, really. You do. What do you, what do you sell the most of these days? Is there anything in particular you sell a lot of, or is it still well, right across the board? For, for my sins, I am recognised as being one of the few specialists in front-wheel drive triumph uh, yeah. although i've only ever owned well i've owned one of each actually i've owned a 1300 and a 1500 both of which i quite like i didn't hang on to either of them that long and um, they were one of the cars that i targeted when i first started because they they seemed to be the poor relation they were quite a lot of them around but nobody seemed to be paying much attention in keeping them supplied with parts so whenever i bought parts i always kept to look out for front-wheel drive parts and eventually built up quite a collection because 
the dealerships were only too pleased to get rid of the spares for them, and and yet there were a lot of people who had the cars. Yeah, they were they were odd, weren't they? Because you had like the Dolomite rear wheel drive, yeah, and the front wheel drive ones, but they looked the same. So that was always confusing. They very similar, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the most similar was the 1500, which yeah. was the follow-up 1300, which generally wasn't as popular because the 1300 was one of a kind. It was like a, a pocket limousine in many people's eyes. But by the time they came up with the 1500, it looked a bit more ordinary. But it was just as capable a car and probably a bit more robust as well because they'd redesigned bits of the gearbox and so on, which tended to give trouble. They've got, they've got to be one of the only manufacturers I've ever seen where you had more or less a similar-looking car, that one was a rear-wheel drive and one was a front-wheel drive. That's and right. it, it was very unusual, that was, and it, it kind of they, sum, summed them up a little bit. I think to go rear-wheel drive on everything, because the 1300, although it was a very, very popular car, it was a top seller at one time, it did have a lot of comeback with um, warranty issues for various things. And, of course, it was a very expensive car to build because it had a lot... Seemed to have a lot more bits in it than your normal transmission and drivetrain. I remember seeing a, a photograph on the front of a very old Sunday Times colour supplement in the 60s when they first came out, showing all the bits that went up to make a 1300 front-wheel drive spread out all over the floor of this big shed with the shell in the middle and everything else sort of neatly stacked around it. It was very eye-catching and thought-provoking photograph, actually. And uh, I wish I could get a hold of a copy. But um, the 1500 shell believe it or not, was the same as the Dolomite shell. It even yeah, I had, thought that. I actually it thought even that. had yeah. a transmission tunnel, even though it had no transmission. And it had all the pickup points for the Dolomite-style rear suspension, even though they weren't mostly used. So it's, it's amusing to think that a lot of people have actually reshelled Dolomite sprints into 1,500 shells over the years, because they are the same body shell, but they were made a bit better, and they used thicker gauge steel, and they painted them a bit better. So you're more likely to find a decent 1500 shell than you are a decent late Dolomite shell. I was going to say that as well, and probably right. well, probably you, pick one up cheaper as well at the, yeah, at the time. Absolutely. Well, you know, you know that uh, you know that the cars from about '76 onwards got a bit of a reputation for rot and etc the triumph uh, you often find that a, a late 70s triumph is a lot more rotten than an early 70s one and this was because i was told by no less than john mccartney that they went over to water-based paint around 1975 now this was a total eye-opener to me but apparently this was the case because they they thought they'd jump the gun on the health and safety at work act and phase out the use of cellulose, etc., etc. And so the Triumph 2000s, Dolomites and Spitfires of that era, allegedly, were all sprayed with water-based paint. Oh, I didn't know that. That's a that's learnt something today now. Well, yes. I mean, I'd like to get some corroboration on that. But if John McCartney said that's what they did, I, I'm pretty sure that's right, because he was very high up in the Triumph hierarchy at the time. Could you um, let the listeners know how you break down your ranges of parts? Well, yes. I mean, from the point of view of it's listing interesting. and so on, yeah. um, my list, the main one, is called the TSSC list, which might baffle some people, but the, the main club for the Spitfire, Herald, Vitesse, GT6 and Bond in the UK is the Triumph Sports 6 Club. And so I've been a member of the TSSC since 19... 19- if you if you think and, about our um, our audience here, right, that the Triumph Sport Six was the only one that went over to the states with that name because it was the Vitesse in the states. 
That's right. Yeah. So it was, it so was rather confusing because I didn't join for the first year or so they were going because I'd only got a Herald. Well, when I bought my wife's Herald for her, I didn't join the TSSC because I thought it was only for the GT6s and Vitesses and yeah, all that sort of stuff. They must have lost a few customers over that. Yeah, but for sure. The, uh, the thing was that um, the, the other thing, reason why it was called the Sports 6 Club was because it was six models. Herald, oh, okay. Spitfire, Vitesse, GT6, that's four, five, Bonds, and I think the six was Specials. Yes, that's right, yeah. I remember when I was talking to Chris and also Wayne at the TR register, the, diff- the different specials, because there's a whole bunch of them, isn't there? So, yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, the, uh, I mean, even the Lotus could be considered to be a Triumph special, but, the, of course, don't say that to a Lotus owner. No, same they, old same old Trunnions and all that. <laughs> so, uh, so, you've got, so you've got your TSSC range. Yeah, so that covers all that lot, which was one of the first cars I owned, you see, so that was always the most sort of in my mind. But then you'd got the Triumph 2000, which incorporates, obviously, the 2.5s and the PIs and etc. And then you've got the, the other clubs, which I never really claimed to do much for. That's the Stag, Dolomite, apart from the four-wheel drives, of course. I actually have quite a lot of Dolomite parts. But the, so it basically, it was the TSSC, the 2000, the Dolomite, incorporating front-wheel drives. And then a long way after came TRs, TR7s and Stags, because... It's, it was a lot more difficult. It was always a lot more difficult to find new spares for those because these are stags and TRs. They were classic cars from the day they rolled out the showroom. So the chances of finding a garage with piles of unused TR parts going for nothing was pretty slim. Do you do much with the earlier TRs? Not at all. No. The, the, only one, the, the only one I've got significant parts for is the TR. Well, five and six, because okay. of course there were a lot more carryover parts. Yeah, yeah, so, definitely. From the Prime yeah. 2000 range and so on. Earlier ones, well, obviously I've got a certain amount of stock, but like I said, you know, you just won't find TR parts. No. But I, having said that, I went to an old garage in um, Birmingham quite recently and found some hubs in cardboard boxes. Hubs. And they did, the number didn't mean anything to me, but they were obviously Triumph. I thought it must be Vanguard or something because of stuff there. So I took them home and checked them out. They were actually off TR4s. Do you do Three. anything with the older stuff as well, the Mayflowers and things like that? Uh, I suppose that's really. standard, really, but isn't it, that stuff? Very really. rare to find any new stuff for that. Yeah. I have a certain amount of standard stuff, but then, of course, the, the, the Herald engine and gearbox has its origin way back in the standard 8 and 10. So um, you often find parts for those when you find Triumph parts in garages, or you used to anyway. So I had a, a nucleus of standard parts, but I, I've mostly sold them on to the club because the standard register is a very, very flourishing club, and they've always had a really big spares operation going, right from the 60s onwards, to the extent that, as far as I know, there's nobody who actually makes a business of selling standard parts. And yet there's a lot and lot of standards still on the road. I believe there was um, quite a number went to the States, but they were badged as Triumphs, weren't they? Because they didn't want to call them standards. They used to sell the Companion and the Standard 10 as the Triumph 10. That's it. Yeah, because one of the... Because I I, I subscribed to Hemming's Classic Car from the States, and one of the editors there has got a Triumph 10. And I had to go and look up what a Triumph 10 was. And now I'm thinking, mm-hmm. well, it looks like a standard, and it is. So, do you um, do you export any parts? Do you get people call- oh, calling well, you from abroad and states and New Zealand and into Europe, obviously, because mm. there's so many cars in Europe. 
but I do sell a certain amount of stuff to the state. Time for a break on the classic car show from America's Web Radio. I'll be back with my guest, Mick Dolphin, after these messages. Hi, this is Steve Ronaldo, host of the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio. Uh, just talking to you about antique car insurance. I think that uh, if you're looking for the best coverage for your classic car, consider J.C. Taylor Insurance. They've been our my insurer for years in this hobby and have the top rating of every, all of the insurance companies in the hobby. When you get ready for insurance, call J.C. Taylor or visit jctaylor.com on the Internet. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like. Your auto love and investment demands the best, and for 45 years, Passport Transport has been meeting those demands. From manufacturers to the one-car collectors and all other facets of the auto industry and antique auto hobby. The first and the finest with unequaled service and peace of mind. Passport Transport, your auto transportation company. Contact PassportTransport.com with your need today. Passport Transport. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This is Kevin Flood on America's Web Radio, the classic car show, and we're back with my guest, Mick Dolphin. I'm always a bit concerned about things like product liability, but I think, well, what the hell, you know, they're buying a genuine 30-year-old part. They do want a new old stock part if they can get it, too. They're definitely keen to get the original thing. Which parts would you say are now made of unobtainium? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well... Quite a lot of them, actually, in terms of, you know, in terms of genuine parts. I think the Holy Grail is probably the 2.5 PI Mark One Bonnet Air Scoop, which always goes for absolutely crazy money whenever you see them on eBay. So I, um, I did have one in my hot little hand, and that came from that same garage in Manchester I mentioned yeah. earlier. And when, when they bought the stock from their local drive dealership, they did rack out a lot of their old showrooms. Um, and so a lot of the spares they, they got, the smaller ones, were beautifully racked out. Larger ones were kept in big cardboard boxes with a card index to say what was in each box. Needless to say, I just would grab the boxes and went through and stuff. Stuff they hadn't got round to sorting was either in black bin bags upstairs or dumped in corners in big cardboard boxes. And um, so I was rooting through a big cardboard box up in their attic one time when I was up there and fishing out filthy old second-hand dynamos and things and putting them on one side and rooting about. And to my total amazement, right at the bottom, no, not in any packaging, was a 2.5 PI air scoop brand spanking new. The only slight damage on it was a slight dent in the badge foil where somebody uh, obviously chucked a dynamo in after it. Why are, uh, they, why are they rare? Is it cause did they Were they open to damage or is just the fact that well, they just they, didn't make many? Of course, the PI is quite a one now, yeah. but there were never that many built. And the, the injection air scoop was different to the 2000. Yeah. badge in the middle said injection. Yeah, it did. Yeah, I remember. And, um, of course, they weren't made of chrome brass. They were made of um, monkey metal. And as a result, they, they go into pimples and bubbles. And yeah, or, or as American friends call it, pot metal. What, sorry? Pot metal, they call it yeah. in the States, don't pot they? Pot metal, that's yeah. right. So to find a new one is like, uh, you know, 
finding a holy grail. I, I sold this one to a guy who happened to want one for a, a car he was rebuilding, and he told me that he'd recently seen one on eBay for 150 quid or something, and I said, well, you know, I don't think any piece of metal is worth that kind of money. You can have it for 120 quid, which I thought was pretty rip, bad. Ripped your arm off, I would think. He, he did, actually, yeah, and what more... I discovered subsequently that the ones he was talking about weren't even new. Mine was around spanking new ones, so... But I think various people have considered remaking them, but again, they do it in brass, and it would be a horrendously complicated operation. How do you, these days, how do you source stuff? Have you got, like, a a network of ears and eyes around, or do you... Well, no, it's all a bit haphazard, really. I was lucky last year because several people got in touch with me who'd been long-time Triumph enthusiasts, a bit like um, Chris Gunby, sort of a sort of fanatic, you know, going back for years. And he they, is very keen, isn't he? He's very keen, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, what was I going to say? Yes, and um, they were they were enthusiasts who'd done up a succession of cars over the years, probably a lot better than I had, and they in the process they'd started stockpiling any bits they could get their hands on from local dealers from sort of mid-70s onwards, and they'd used some, they'd probably traded some with other enthusiasts, but at the end of the day, when they got too old to uh, do up any more, or their interests went in different directions, they were left with all this stuff, and I was very grateful to them for thinking of me, for because uh, I've bought two or three collections of parts now from people like this, and who provided me with some very good stuff. I mean, last summer, I came back home with a trailer load of new Mark One Spitfire, Mark One and Three Spitfire panels, which I sold through the TSSC magazine, The Courier, and there was a photograph there with me sitting on our, our lawn at home, surrounded by mint part stuff, and I must say that 90% of that has sold now. Uh, I think I sold the last few bits at Stonely on Sunday. Potted history of Stonely and what that means, really, because that is a big one, isn't it? That's right, the, the Stonely show. Stonely is a big agricultural showground, more or less in the centre of England, in Warwickshire. Half the time it has cattle shows and sort of other, but several times a year it hosts classic car shows. And a very important one has always been the Triumph show, which is taking place usually in February or March, and it's like the first big restoration show of the year. And you get quite a lot of people going there because they've all decided their New Year's resolution is going to be putting in some serious work on their classic, so they're all eager to buy stuff. And this is a spares day, primarily, although there are cars on show and club stands and so on, but basically people go there to buy parts. And so I was, I think I've probably been going there about 15 years. In the last few years, they've ruffled a few feathers by combining it with the MG show, because the number of attendants was dropping slightly. And in order to make it worth their while, they combined the MG show with the Triumph show. So now the footfall is quite dramatic and like i said last sunday it was really busy most of the day and it doesn't seem to have suffered through having been combined with the mg show though when you're going round, it i suppose you have to watch out because mg uh, dealers never seem to sell triumph stuff and vice versa so you've really got to keep your eyes out and work out which is which yeah because because some some things i guess i thought that maybe the odd thing like water pumps and things are similar aren't they or are they different because I thought uh, there were some similarities. Actually, if you if you look at cars like the Midget, the, the later Midget 1500, in fact, used the entire engine and gearbox setup. And the Spitfire. The yeah. Spitfire, yes. Yeah. It's, it's 
decided they couldn't go any bigger with the uh, British Leyland BMC engine they'd been using, so the cheapest option was to go to the 1500 Spitfire, and that, that worked quite well, though, of course, some MG purists were a little bit miffed when, when they had to buy a midget with a basically Triumph engine in it. There you go. At the time, if you think the sort of state of flux that the industry was in, it's, it, you just had to make do and mend, really, didn't you, with what you had, I think, because it was... That's right, it was just... Uh, by that time, of course, MG and Triumph were totally bound up in British Leyland, so it made sense to have common gearboxes and things across the ranges. Yeah. Do you do much with the clubs? You know, what, do you do special deals for the clubs or anything like that? Well, not really, because no. the pe- people constantly ring me up from the classic car magazines and saying, why don't you have some more advertising with it? You used to advertise and so forth. But because of the, the niche nature of my market... They know you. <laughs> I don't really go overboard to sell stuff. I know it sounds stupid, but you've got to pace yourself because you're never quite sure where your next spares are coming from. Well, I've got to say, I mean, I, I found you through... Somebody years ago told me about you at Bewley. Then I found your website, and so I found you through word of mouth. And I'm, oh. I'll, you'll never get rich off of me, but I've bought for, over the years a few things from my Herald from you. So yeah. I think it's kind of like that, isn't it, that you... Because I've I've usually advertised in the club magazines, partly because I like to support them. Um, But basically, money I spend on advertising doesn't really reap much dividends, because if I sell something, there's no warehouse I can go to to restock. No, that's true. Or if I find something or other is a popular part, I can't, oh, I'll I'll buy more of them next time. It doesn't work like that. It's like antique dealing, unfortunately. When it's gone, it's gone. Yeah, that's it. I mean, that's the only other alternative you've got then is to go down the repro route, which is more aggro than it's worth, really, I would think. I shun, shun big time, because it's just not what I what I'm about. But people often say to me, they just can't help themselves. They say, oh, when will you be getting some more in, you know? (laughs) And I always say, well, if you can just give me Doctor Who's address, perhaps he can take me back to 1967 and we can bring a load back. Thinking about it now, I live in Reading and the Triumph dealer here was Julian's. Julian's. And they, I mean, they're gone probably 30 years ago, I guess. Like you say, it's going to have to be real barn find type stuff now, isn't it? that you're yeah. going to find, you know, tucked away somewhere that somebody was yeah. accumulating for something else or... No, I wouldn't rule out the possibility of there being some ex-Triumph dealerships in some fairly remote area. hasn't been fully discovered yet, but it's a, it's a fact, looking through these dealership lists, the bigger the company and the bigger the dealership, the quicker they folded after BL closed because they literally went from selling loads and loads and loads of stuff to selling nothing and they usually immediately picked up a franchise from some other um, manufacturer probably Japanese and threw all their stuff out and then they were there were constant amalgamations at the bigger end of the market and then at the end all these companies belong to the same umbrella organization which probably went bust and so all these places closed simultaneously, you know, whereas the very small dealers that managed to hang on in more obscure places, the family dealers, that's where I've had most of my stuff from. Because yeah, they don't like I, I think you're right. Yeah. They haven't got an account to tapping them on the shoulder and saying, look, this is slow-moving parts, get rid of it, which usually to them meant throwing them away, of course, rather than selling them. And if they did take on another franchise, then they kept the old stuff as well. But more often than not, they didn't take on another franchise. They just became sort of local garage, a few Triumph spares. And I I picked up some very useful stuff from places like that. But it's very haphazard, of course. They didn't used to stock much stuff, whereas the the place in Manchester had multiples of a lot of I guess as well, you're going to have people with, like, all the specials, like the Bonds and all that sort of stuff. Plus, I suppose there's Amphicars and things like that have got 
Triumph oh, yes, Arts. Oh, well, yes, and... I suppose counts as a special as far as the TSC yeah. is concerned. But, yeah, I, I can honestly say I've never knowingly sold parts for an amphicar. But I <laughs> think basically it was just the engine. I was watching one, oh, I don't know, I was watching something on TV the other day and I was looking at it and it's got a bit of a, a bit of a herald about it, the shape for definite, I think. I think. almost look like they've been taken off a herald, but it's possible the quarter light frames might be modified herald ones because they certainly look like they are, but there are no visible herald parts on them that I can think of. Yeah, it's just a kind of taste of a herald, I think, that yeah, it looks that's like. Right. It's shape, isn't it? So, yeah. just just getting near the end now, actually, but what are your thoughts on the general future of the classic car hobby in the UK? I mean, sometimes I think, I mean, I'm, I'm 56 and I'm kind of a youngster sometimes when I turn up at things. I was, yeah. Wayne that I interviewed from the TR register, he's only 32, which kind of, which is great, really, for somebody who's that heavily into classics. So, I don't know, you know, you're about the shows and things like that. Is it greying that much? Or is there youngsters, do you think? Well, or? if I'm anything to go by, absolutely, yes. Yeah, I keep finding people younger than me who've died being mentioned in the magazines. But <laughs> yeah. the, um, well, me too, nowadays. <laughs> the demographic varies slightly, but by model. I mean, you get quite a few people who are into Spitfires and GT6s who are relatively young. TR7s seem to attract quite a younger audience as yeah, well. Yeah, Wayne, Wayne, Wayne Scott at the TRs registered has got a TR7 V8, so that kind of confirms that for sure. Yeah, but you, you look at, say, the Triumph 2000 um, register, I don't think I'd be giving anything away if I said that the average age of uh, their owners is getting on a bit now. Same is true of quite a lot of the the Herald and uh, similar people, because I mean, I've grown up with a lot of these people, and when I go to Stoneley, you know, I see people that I've been selling bits to on and off, or have known, for anything up to 30 years, and it can be a bit worrying sometimes when you see how old some of them are getting. You know, they're still mad keen on their triumphs, and also I see a a growing trend to encouraging your children, and in some cases grandchildren, to follow in the footsteps. I saw a few examples of that at the weekend, which is always very nice, so plenty of Hope. That's good because the my show goes out every fourth show on on the on the station, and the guys who do the American shows, the other three shows, they're all um, AACA members and things like that, and they're very keen on getting take a grandkid to a car show type things and stuff like yeah. that. And, wow. I, and I think that's it's just to let people know that it's there. Well, then I they... went to the local um, canal uh, get together a few years ago. And I think the uh, the big surprise of the day was somebody brought his amphicar along. Oh, brilliant. And I had a ride in it. It was fantastic. Great. Everybody who, who saw it, you know, just couldn't believe their eyes. And when it sort of crawled out up the ramp and out of the canal at the end, you know, it got a round of applause. There's such... Like they, like they always say, there's never anything new, really. It's always reinvented. And that, that thing in its time was a really clever idea. Yeah. So, well, it's a great note to end on, Mick. Thanks very much for your time today. It's been a really fascinating interview. I hope to be buying off you for many years. <laughs> right. Well, and I hope to try and satisfy your requirements. No, oh, I think it's been so, great. Uh, so, uh, nice to talk to you, Kevin. Yeah, you too, Mick. My name's Kevin Flood, and I'm signing off from the UK for the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio. Goodbye. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.